Well, it was one man, David Livingston, who so greatly influenced the continent of Africa toward God that Africa and Livingston are almost synonymous terms. It was one man, William Carey, responsible for the redemptive, transforming power of Christ being effectively presented to the teeming millions in India. It was because of one man, William Booth, who gave himself completely to God's service that there started in the slums of London the beginnings of an evangelistic movement that encircled the globe known as the Salvation Army. It was C.H. Chapin who said on one occasion, not armies, not nations have advanced the race, but here and there in the course of the ages, an individual has stood up and cast his shadow over the world. He's right. And the history of the church is no different than that. The history of the church is the history of individuals just like me, just like you. And there are individuals that move in church history, and between the individuals, there's the flow that they've created. The mass of the church sleeps, but here and there, great men, great women have changed history by the power of God. And yet, you see, the Great Commission is given to all of us who claim to know and love and be committed to following Jesus. Amen? He didn't say, all you preachers get this job of making disciples done. He didn't say, the deacons in the local church are the ones who are supposed to get the job done and reach in their community for Christ. The Great Commission comes to each and every one of us. You, sir, are a missionary. You, ma'am, are a missionary. I am a missionary. We are all called and sent. Whether we step foot ever out of the United States of America or not, we are sent with the gospel into our world to make disciples. And so today, we continue our study from the book of Acts. We are continuing to learn as we try to capture the the main idea of the book of Acts. We continue to learn about Jesus' gospel gathering for gospel going. What is the book of Acts all about? It's about the church. That becomes pretty clear pretty quick. And, And so we think about the church in terms of Jesus' gospel gathering. What is the church? It is a group of people gathered around the gospel, people who've been purchased by the one who died, by the one who the gospel's about, amen? We are owned by Jesus Christ, and so as his, we gather around the gospel. Why do we gather around the gospel? Just so we can sit and soak and sour, right? No, so that we can sit and soak, yes, and worship, and then go with the gospel. Jesus' gospel gathering for gospel going. If you boil this book down, it's the story of folks who were convinced that Jesus of Nazareth was the Savior sent from God who had died a criminal's death to pay for our sins and then had risen from the dead proving that he was indeed God our Savior and that his death did pay it all And their message was very simple. Trust in Jesus, the one who died for your sins and rose from the dead and who will one day return to judge both the living and the dead. J.D. Greer says this of faith. Faith is the unexplainable, that is, questions about God and Jesus that we can't answer. You ever had any of those? Did you have any questions you couldn't answer before you came to, to Christ? 
probably. Do you know someone right now? Are you in a relationship with someone right now who has questions about the Bible, about God, about Jesus, about all sorts of things spiritual that you can't answer? This is yes in America still. Yes. Of course you do. You know people like that. Faith is the unexplainable, the questions about God that we can't answer, meeting the undeniable, the historic fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Faith is the unexplainable, meeting the undeniable. Jesus lives. You see, we don't have to answer every question that every person will ever have. There's a place for apologetics, Tacey, Joe, and Tim. There's a great place for that. There's an important place for answering people's questions. But hear me, you'll never answer every question. We don't have to answer every question every person will ever have. The truth is, I can't and you can't. Probably no single individual can. You say, I bet Ravi Zacharias can. I bet he can't. There's somebody somewhere with a question that can't be answered. But we're called to proclaim the good news of a risen Savior. And listen to me. He overrides and is the answer to so many of the questions. Can I say it this way? Sometimes if we can just keep going back to the gospel, keep taking people to the cross, keep taking people to the resurrected Jesus, if they'll meet him and trust him, suddenly the questions disappear. Either they're irrelevant or they're answered. Amen? So this is the gospel of which we're called. This is what the book of Acts is all about. God's people, Jesus' gospel gathering, going with the gospel, the message of a resurrected Savior. A message no other faith proclaims. It's not that they don't have prophets. It's not that they have some leader somewhere along the way, but here's the deal. What's the difference? Their guy's dead. And he's no different from them. He died in his sins. Our leader was sinless. He was the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he overcame. He, he, he died, but he only died because of my sin and yours. Amen. And yet as a son of God, he rose in victory over those sins. And he lives today. And we serve a living Savior. I want to talk to you this morning from Acts chapter 14. I'm going to talk quickly because we're going to talk through the whole chapter. Don't worry, we can do this. I want to talk to you about characteristics of gospel going. Characteristics of gospel going. We've, we've, we've thought a lot about Jesus' gospel gathering. We've learned a lot about the message of the gospel itself. We, we, we move into this, we've been, I mean, we've been in this uh, already, this, this section of the scripture where the gospel is really making big advances. In Acts chapter 14, the gospel is really making huge advances into Gentile territory. This is Paul's first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14. In fact, we're going to get him back home today before we leave. We're going to get through the mission, first missionary journey and back to the house, okay? So that's where we're going today. And, and in the middle of this, we learn a lot about gospel going. And I want, you, I want us to look at, uh, at some characteristics of gospel going. But here's, here's the take-home truth. This is what I want you to, to walk away with if you missed the four points. We can be faithful witnesses because God has given us a picture of what our gospel going should look like. You hear that statement we've been making, Jesus. 
Jesus gospel gathering for gospel going. Maybe you've been wondering, what's that supposed to look like? How will I know if I'm effectively gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel? How can we as a church measure ourselves as, as to whether we're being faithful to the Great Commission, faithful to this, uh, to this task of gospel going? Well, by the time you leave today, if you'll write down four things, you'll know, okay? But if you don't, then you can listen to the sermon online and you can pick that up later. But get this point. We can be faithful witnesses. You can do this. You can fulfill the Great Commission because God has given us a picture of what our gospel going should look like. Notice with me the following four characteristics of gospel going. First of all, we see from verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to jump down to verse, verse 19 and 20. We see this concerning gospel going. Gospel preaching provokes persecution. Just know it. Where did I get that? Verse 1 of Acts chapter 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. We were told in the last chapter, if you weren't with us last week, they spent Acts 13 in Pisidian Antioch. And we were told at the end of that chapter, they went to Iconium. At Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. What have they done at Pisidian Antioch when they got there? Entered into the Jewish synagogue. Same pattern here, right? And spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. What happened when they spoke the gospel in the Jewish synagogue in Pisidian Antioch? Same thing. A number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Once again, it's a pattern. I think you've got the answer already before I ask the question. What happened in Pisidian Antioch? The same thing. Those who didn't believe stirred up trouble against the gospel. Gospel preaching provokes persecution. I want to read verse 2 again and go right into verse 3 because I want you to see a key word. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. That's bad, right? This is a negative development in the, in the, in the, in the proclamation of the gospel. Verse 3 begins, So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Why is it that sometimes at the first sign of opposition we shut up or go somewhere else or leave, get out of the situation? They saw it as a challenge. Gospel preaching provoked persecution. They just had that as a given. And it didn't mean it was time to leave. Now, there were times when they left, and we'll see some of that today. But it says so because there was opposition, because... People's minds were being poisoned against the gospel. They remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. Verse 4, But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, something, and to the surrounding country. And what did they do when they got there? Shut up, hid, didn't run their mouth anymore because if they did, they would get in the same trouble. They just got in almost stoned in, in Iconium. No, there they continued to preach the gospel. Gospel preaching provokes persecution. The truth of the gospel always brings a mixed reaction. Some believe, and that's why we preach. And others stir up opposition and make up lies to poison minds against the witness. If you skip down with me to verse 19, we're in a different town now. We're at Lystra by the time we get down to verse 19. But again, we're thinking about the fact that 
gospel preaching produces or provokes persecution. Verse 19 says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. They were at Lystra now. And check it out. The trouble didn't just happen in Antioch and Iconium. It followed them down to Lystra. They knew they were still in the area. And so Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, this time they didn't plot to stone. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was, what does that word say? Dead. It just got real, didn't it? I mean, for us, if somebody threatened to kill us, that would be pretty real, wouldn't it? That would be a bad day. They thought they'd killed him. They went back in the city. He looked dead. And the ones that stoned him went home. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Now, some here believe that perhaps he was dead and God resurrected him. This language of when the disciples gathered about him, I don't know. There's no clear indication of that in the text. We can say this. I bet there's a little prayer meeting right there when they gathered around him, don't you? The least we can say is that language is the language of a prayer service, a healing service, amen? You don't just get up from a stoning, hello. I personally don't think he was dead. I think there would have been a big deal made about about resurrection just because the New Testament always does, amen? That's a big deal, right? Lazarus rises from the dead. I mean, that's a big deal. We, we know he was dead for days, and then he lived. Jesus, big deal. So, but let me tell you, if you just got stoned, you're about dead, right? You're close. So there's this prayer meeting, and God answers prayer, and he rose up and entered the city, and check it out. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. You see, here's the point. Sometimes the sacrifice is great in order to advance the gospel. Are you willing to pay? Are you willing to make that sacrifice to pay that price that the gospel can go where it needs to go through you? I want you to note, though, how they responded in both of these situations. Verse 3, again, we've already noted it. They didn't run from persecution. They remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. And then verse 20, and into verse 21, he rose up and entered the city. This is after he was stoned nearly to death. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derby. For what? Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. I'm talking about Paul near dead this day, stoned, left for dead. He gets up, he goes back into the city, and the morning comes, and he leaves with Barnabas, and as soon as they get to Derby, he preaches the gospel. He keeps doing what got him stoned. Because that's all he can do. So convinced of the truth of the gospel and the resurrected Jesus, he is. What boldness and persistence, even in the face of persecution. You see, gospel preaching provokes persecution. The question is, will we be this bold and persistent with the gospel no matter what, no matter where God calls us? Let me tell you something. God's called you right where you are. 
God has put us in this city, in this county, in this state, this nation, at this time in history for this gospel reason. Amen? Just like Esther, she knew God had put her in that place for such a time as this. How many watched the news this week? This week any better than last week? Things getting any better? No. Let me tell you something. Your purpose doesn't change based on the news. Your purpose is always and ever the same to preach the gospel. What does our world need? Is it, is, is it some, if, if anything but the gospel comes to mind, you're thinking unlike Christ, unlike the church of Jesus Christ. The answer is not any political stance or position or platform. It's not an economic answer. It's nothing social. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is above all of that and changes all of that from the top down. Amen? From inside out, from the heart out into the life and then into the community. So will we be this bold and persistent, not with our party's platform, not with the moral uh, position of the day, rather with the gospel The truth about a resurrected Savior. No matter what, no matter where God calls. You see, we can be faithful witnesses because God has given us a picture of what our gospel going should look like. And here's what we just need to know. Gospel preaching provokes persecution. That's just normal. Secondly, gospel power requires explanation, verses 8 through 18. Now, at Lystra... There was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in their language like, Hey, I know something. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, Greek gods, because he was the chief speaker. They literally thought that the Greek god Zeus, the Greek god Hermes, had shown up in their town. And they start worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds to Paul and Barnabas. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own Ways Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, verse 18 says, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Now, the indication is they did. The indication is Paul perhaps continued to go on with the, with the gospel, To talk specifically about Jesus and the resurrection, we're not told there. But it says, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people. You see, gospel power 
sometimes requires explanation. Sometimes God works in unusual and amazing ways when the gospel is advancing into new territory. We see it all out throughout the book of Acts. We've talked about this before. There's times today when we will hear reports from the Muslim world where it's illegal to witness and share the gospel, where you can't send missionaries as missionaries. We hear stories of how God, even in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, is giving visions and dreams to people of missionaries who will come, men and women who will covertly go into Iran and, and other places, Somalia, Sudan, these places where it's, it's hard and, and dangerous to be a Christian, and they'll bring the message of the gospel into this Muslim area and they will believe the truth. Sometimes God works in unusual and amazing ways when the gospel is advancing into new territory. And because of that, sometimes the power will be perceived as being from the messengers. This is when a faithful witness must deflect any glory given to himself or herself and clearly and humbly point to the living God as the only source of the power. We read earlier in this text in, in, in another one of the towns there were signs and wonders being done, right? Uh, let me just ask you, and, and we, can, we can differ on, on this point of theology. How many of you believe God can still do miracles and is still working signs and wonders in our world today? Amen. Now, if you believe that those have ceased, that's fine. You can be wrong. You have every right to be wrong. However, just teasing. <clears throat> but uh, <laughs> here's the deal. How many times in our culture, listen to me, stay with me, how many times in our culture do we see signs and wonders and where does the glory end up? To God or to men? So many times it's to men. So many times what happens in these false signs and wonders, these movements where, where, where signs and wonders are at least perceived to be more important than the gospel Suddenly, it's all about the personality through whom the supposed sign and wonders come through. You'll never find that in the gospel. In fact, you'll find the instruments of the signs and wonders, Paul and Barnabas in this case, deflecting the glory, saying, you're missing the point. We're not the point. This thing that happened is not the point. The, the one who rose from the dead and therefore can raise the dead, he's the point. Look to him. Look to him. We can be faithful witnesses because God has given us a picture of what our gospel going should look like. Let me just ask you this. What if God did? And I don't believe he generally does. For those of you who believe the, the sign gifts have ceased, hear me say this. I don't believe generally in an evangelized culture, he generally continues to do those types of things. I think most of what we see based on the book of Acts has to do where the, on the cutting edge of the gospel, as the gospel's moving into new areas. But what if, what if something supernatural were to happen in your life, in a relationship, in a conversation, in this body on a Sunday morning. What would our responsibility be in that moment? This is training in case the Holy Spirit messes up our theology. Are you with me? Blows our mind. Freaks us out. What do you, what do you know? What, what did you just learn from this passage 
What can you be sure that you're supposed to do? Point to Jesus. Isn't that simple? If it syncs with the Word of God, if it's something that God has shown in His Word that He does, number one, it in itself, it'll point to Him. But number two, we must point all who behold it to Him. Amen? Now, can I just tell you, it'd suit me if God kept that stuff on the mission field. Because <laughs> I've never had to deal with that. Amen? And yet, here's what I know. If it ever happened, you run it through this filter of Scripture. Does God do whatever's happening? A lot of things. There's all kind of barking and stuff that Scripture never testifies in churches all around the nation. Amen? It's not in the Scripture. Can we say it's not of God? I mean, if it's not in the Bible, I think we can, right? Again, if it's exalting personalities other than the, per- than the person of Jesus... And we can say it's not of God, unequivocally. Thirdly, gospel preachers establish churches. Look at verse 21. This is powerful. So, so let me just kind of catch you up here. They got to the end of the line of this journey. They got to their final destination which I believe was Lystra. And it says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, actually it must have been Derby. It was Derby. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They went in reverse order where they'd just been. Y'all, y'all see that? Why? I mean, have y'all been listening? Is everybody paying attention? What had happened in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby? They'd been opposed. They'd been run out of town. Paul nearly died, stoned in Lystra. And right after his time in Derby, we don't know how long he was there, the first stop is the place he nearly died because it's the closest. It's on the, it's on the path home. What are they doing? Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Gospel preachers establish churches. Today, we have begun to call missionaries church planners. Because that is really what Paul did, is it not? He didn't just evangelize people and leave them to figure out the rest on their own. He planted and established churches. And most often, he would go back by where he'd evangelized and make sure they had the gospel, make sure they were established and organized. He would confirm what had happened the last time he was there. And don't miss this. Paul and Barnabas risked repeat persecution, possible stoning again, in order to follow up and establish these new churches. That's how important establishing the church was to Paul. 
It was as important as getting the gospel to those people. He was willing to take the same risk to make sure they were strong in Christ and solid in the faith as he was to get them the gospel. Do you see that? And what we see is this commitment to build and establish these fledgling churches. Not just birth them and and, and hope they could survive. Not just get them hatched and leave the little fledgling there to flounder around and and maybe live through all the elements, spiritually speaking, and and all the, the dangers and the enemies. No. He went back. And I want you to see from this, these verses three key parts of their follow-up, of their church planning, even as these gospel preachers establish churches. First of all, in verses 21 and 22, you see, the, see there an exhortation to faithfulness in the face of persecution. Paul just tells them, here's the deal. You've seen it in my life. You saw it when I first met you. Through many tribulations you must, enter, must walk to enter the kingdom of heaven. The path to the kingdom is the path of suffering. Persecution is to be expect, the expected path that we walk to get into the kingdom of God. This is the New Testament. This is the early church. Paul tells these folks on day one of their faith, on day one of their church's establishment, your life's going to be one of persecution. That's how it is in the kingdom. And they're just straight up about it. You know, most often, it seems, in American churches, the part of God's, parts of God's word that are so crystal clear that persecution will be the norm for faithful Christ followers is simply ignored and never discussed. Because of what God's word says, my burden is to preach to you the whole counsel of God so that when person persecution comes here in our nation, you will not be surprised, but already expecting it and resolved to be faithful to Jesus no matter what. That right there is the reason why I preach on persecution, on suffering, why I talk about it so very much. Number one reason is because it's just all over the New Testament. And if I'm preaching the Bible, it's going to come up, and it does. But my goal It's to not just gloss over it, not just pass over it, not just say, hey, we talked about that last month. We talked about that when we studied 1 Peter. But rather to touch on it when the Scripture does because I want you to be prepared and not be surprised. Peter said, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that's to come among you, but that you're already expecting it and resolved to be faithful in it no matter what. And so in order to establish these churches, the first thing Paul did was exhort them to faithfulness in the face of persecution. Secondly, though, as he was establishing the churches, notice in verse 23, the first part of it, he organized for church health. He organized for church health. Notice, a plurality of elders is the leadership structure that Paul and Barnabas put in place in each individual church. And if you look throughout the New Testament scriptures, that's the consistently the, 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 the structure, the, 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 the organization of the local body that you see. Tonight at 6.30, we've not done see your, for yourself study in quite a while, the holidays and whatever, Tonight at 6.30-ish, 
And we've got a pray for me dinner at 5, so we may not quite be ready at 6.30, maybe like 6.45. If anybody's still here and hanging around, I'll, I'm going to do a Bible study on this, okay? So come. Not 6 o'clock, though, 6.30. What time is to see for yourself tonight? Okay, good. Y'all are sharp. And I want to take off from these verses and focus on biblical church structure because I believe that God is wanting to move us to a more biblical structure where there is a plurality of elders and the elders slash pastors slash overseers are a distinct office from deacons, all under the leadership of the Holy Spirit through the congregation as a whole. So if you're interested in that at all and where we may be headed as a church, come tonight at 6.30, 6.30-ish. Bottom line, we're going to eat, and we're going to help them clean up, and then we'll do Bible study. All right? Y'all got that? Good deal. Organization for church health. The, the norm that Paul establishes is a plurality of elders. More about that later. Thirdly, notice he gives a commendation to the Lord, commends them to the Lord in prayer and fasting in the second part of verse 23. It says that with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The apostles truly planted churches and left them strong enough to survive and thrive in the work of the gospel. You see, we can be faithful witnesses. We can be faithful witnesses because God has given us a picture of what our gospel going should look like. Lastly this morning, gospel missionaries, the last characteristic of gospel going. Gospel missionaries and gospel churches love doing the Great Commission and glorifying God for His saving power. Listen to verses 24 to 28. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. So they ended in Derby, back through Lystra, Iconium, Pisidia, Antioch there, down through Pisidia to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Is this where the map is, Doug? Or did we already pass the map a long time ago? We passed the map a long time ago? Okay. Notice that even though they are on their way home after some rough stuff, Paul and Barnabas, thank you, Paul and Barnabas stop to preach the gospel in this little town called Perga. Now, you remember a while ago when they, came, when they started their journey, they came to Cyprus, they left from Paphos and sailed to, to Perga. But you remember they didn't even stop there. They just kept going right on up to city Antioch. Well, they catch it on the way home. Think of it. They've nearly died. They've been running from trouble. I mean, it's been a rough trip. They're ready to get home. They're ready to get back to Syrian Antioch over here on the right. But they hadn't preached the gospel in Perga. And so they preach to Perga. They're always telling the story of Jesus. Then they went down to Italia, which is another town on the coast there. And from there, verse 26 says, they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Oh, that that may be said of us. We've been commended by the grace of God, of God to the work. That's just gospel going we're talking about. You have a calling on your life. Will it be said of you that you have fulfilled the work to which you've been called? By the grace of God that sent you? 
The text continues, and when they arrived and gathered the church together, their home, they declared all that God had done with them. Never forget what's really happening in your ministry. It's a good reminder. Never forget what's happening in your ministry. Man, I never forget what's happening in my ministry. God is doing the work if there's any real lasting work getting done. Amen? They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. They were home, they were celebrating, and they were glad to be home. They just decided they would hang out for a little while. There's a place for rest from the ministry, amen? There's a place for, for, for sabbatical. There's a place for uh, fellowship that, that restores and, and recharges the soul. But notice what it centers around. It doesn't center around an ice cold drink on the beach. It, it centers around celebrating what God had done with the people of God. Amen? And dreaming about what, I believe, dreaming about what God would do on the next missionary journey. It's the first of three, right? The apostles understood that they were truly sent ones that were under the authority of the local church back in Syrian Antioch, and so they reported back to their home church. You know, I'm thankful for a missions-minded church here at East LJ and for the relationships that we have with our missionaries, amen, both local and, and abroad. I'm thankful for the work of our missions committee that serves as a liaison to keep us updated and, and, and engaged with, on a regular basis, our missionaries. We hope this year, this calendar year, to have Paul and Marla Fields, missionaries of some 35 years to Paraguay, uh, home in, in the States and, and here with us. Not sure exactly their time frame. It's, it's been changed. I had the opportunity just a couple years ago, my daughter and I, to be in their home there in Calcape, uh, Paraguay, and just an amazing and wonderful ministry they have. Look forward to that time where they'll come back and report to us what's been going on in the ministry there. And we'll just smile and feel a little bit like the church at Antioch, amen? That we're hearing about what God had done through them since the last time we were together. We can be faithful witnesses because God has given us a picture of what our gospel going should look like. Robert Morrison, there he is, an Englishman, set his heart on going to China as a missionary. And so he studied Chinese in London. In 1807, he came to New York to get a ship around the Cape to go to China, and he tried to get passage on a ship, and, but he couldn't because China didn't accept foreigners and nobody wanted to haul him over there and have to haul him all around because they couldn't unload him in China. Finally, he booked passage and he landed in China. He got off, went into a warehouse, stayed in this French warehouse in the city of Canton near the docks and stayed there for six months. During those six months, he learned to cook Chinese food and to dress in Chinese clothes and to kind of adapt himself in Chinese culture. And he spent time studying the Cantonese dialect. Preaching was illegal. But he gathered over the next months and and years a little group of people around him, never more than ten in private, in hiding, and behind closed doors, he would endeavor to teach them the Word of God. Seven years after he landed in Canton, he baptized his first convert. Seven years. That's persistence. 
seven years of gospel going in the same place before one person believed. And yet, what did he keep doing year after year? Until that seventh year, the same thing he did when he got there, preaching the gospel. The same thing we see the apostles doing. Finally, working all day and night, day after day, month after month, he finished his translation of the book of Acts, translated it into Cantonese. And he succeeded in having it printed, but an argument arose among the craftsmen, Christian craftsmen, got in a fight. Suddenly, China was sounding a whole lot like his homeland, church people fighting over the translation of the Word of God. Are you with me? They were the craftsmen who had, by hand, chiseled out of, out of wood every character for his translation of the book of Acts, and he was further going through the New Testament. And they had this big fight, and the fight was so blatant that the authorities found out about it and put a stop to all his printing. And all the effort of all those months was stopped. The printing was stopped. No more copies could be made. No future printing, no future preaching. He was forbidden from all of it by the government. So what did he do? Pack up his bags, take all his toys and go home? No, he persisted. Which is what he should have done. He stayed on the job because he believed God was in it. He mastered the language and listen to this. He translated the entire Bible into Cantonese, a massive work. He also accomplished a six-volume Chinese-English dictionary so that missionaries would not only have the Bible, but they'd have a dictionary to learn the language when they would come later on. All of this in the early 1800s. 27 years of loneliness and self-sacrificing persistence, and he paved the way for every missionary that ever gave the gospel to a person who spoke Cantonese since that day. And today there's an academy in free China, Taiwan, and it's called Morrison Academy. And we haven't forgotten because he was persistent. Never preached to big crowds, but he was persistent with the gospel where God put him, with the few God gave him. And God worked mightily. That's what gospel going looks like. On this weekend of celebrating 50 years since Martin Luther King Jr., listen to this quote from him. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, May we add the persistent spirit of the early church. It will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning. Martin Luther King Jr. said that 50 years ago. It has taken place and is still, those words are still coming true in America today. Why? Because we've forgotten as the church, that we are Jesus' gospel gathering. Gathered around that gospel for gospel going. Nothing more, nothing less. And we've forgotten that 
gospel going looks like these things we've talked about this morning. It's bold and persistent in the face of persecution. It humbly and clearly points to the power of the resurrection as being the one and true living God in Him alone. It strengthens the local church by preparing for persecution and organizing for help and for discipleship. And it loves being part of God's fulfillment of the Great Commission while giving Him all the glory for everything that's accomplished. That's a church the world won't be able to forget. That's a message that will never be irrelevant in any culture. But expect persecution. And yet alongside that persecution, know this, you preach a risen Savior who's alive today and is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that lives in me, that lives in you that lived in Paul and Barnabas, that lived in Morrison, Carrie, all the missionaries, all the greats, and all the unknowns that discipled their children and their neighbors with the gospel. Let's pray again.